Oh man, I love pranking people. We um, so we uh, we just hired a new youth pastor at Frontline, and he awesome guy, young guy, one of the one of the best young leaders I've ever met in my entire life. And um, but we uh, yes, AJ, I'm talking about AJ. Um, but he's one of the best young leaders I've ever met in my entire life, and he's a really fun, whimsical, super charismatic guy, and um, kind of personality and stuff. But he uh, when we he had been an intern with us for like two years. And then he, we hired him for like six months on an interim basis just to see how he would do. And he was being younger, and it's a big, big, like, big church and stuff. And so, um, anyway, we are just checking to see how it would work out. So he ended up being fantastic. And so when we announced him, uh, we were gonna, when we were going to announce him on a Sunday morning, I was like, we need to play a prank on him somehow. So let's figure it out. And so I had this idea that um, it would be really fun when we announced him if we put a slide up on the screen and we said, hey, we wanted to just have everybody to be able to say congratulations to Jacob. We thought the best way to do that is if you were to be able to text him. So we put his, text, we put his phone number on the screen and tell everybody to take out their cell phone and text bomb him 10 times to say congratulations. And from the time he walked off the stage to the time he got ba- to the back of the sanctuary, he had 150 texts. And then in between services, by the time the second service had started, he had 700 texts. And uh, he ended up having like 1,500 texts that day. It was awesome. So, and here's what's cool about him. He responded to every single one of them. That's what's awesome. So if you want good leadership, man, that'll give you social capital right there. So, um, so I have this mint in my mouth that was a really good idea when I was in the car that Alan Lee gave me, and it is a terrible idea now. So um, talk to me. Who, who was here at the beginning earlier? So Everybody? So there's a ton of information and not a ton of time to, like, dialogue, that kind of thing. We've got two sessions. We'll be done earlier than four today, hopefully, anyway. Depends on how much discussion and stuff happens. But um, uh, we'll do Sticky Families next. And I want to cover a couple things that I, I left off from the first from one of the sessions or from the last session um, with you guys. And uh, a little bit about the change process in churches. And, um, and then talk about families. And then we'll talk about prep or Sticky Prep, how you prepare kids to leave really tangible ideas. This is where it kind of gets into the nitty-gritty. We're kind of less ideological, more practical, um, that kind of stuff for these last couple sessions. So uh, what what's milling in your brains? What's going on? Things you agree with, things you struggle with, disagree with? Yeah. Excited about? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 That's Scott Cormode before I plagiarize, um, he's brilliant, and he's talked a lot about the change process, because so much of this is dependent upon cultures changing in churches, and if your culture doesn't change in your church, then you can't really implement this stuff, and uh, the other thing that this, the, the other thing that's really difficult about this, we were, Brent and I were talking about this last night, is if, if your senior leadership isn't on board with this, which is why I was so insistent that I wasn't, I didn't want to just talk to youth pastors around here. Um, if your senior leadership isn't on board, this stuff won't work. Your senior leadership has to be on board with it. And so thankfully our church is on board. Actually, my lead pastor is the one who handed me the first ever article I saw from Fuller. It was in a leadership journal article um, in 2009. And uh, it was like life altering. And so I didn't have to talk him into anything. Actually, I, all I did was just remind him that he got us on this crazy journey where we don't know what we're doing. <laughs> so anyway, the point is that there's so much to be said about how the change process happens. And so Fuller's taught me a lot about youth ministry and a lot about programs and stuff. But I think one of the most helpful things they've taught us is how to change culture. Or, and 
still don't know if I know how to do it, but there's some really good principles along the way, and that's one of them, right? So, yeah. People don't resist change, they resist loss. The number one thing. Yeah. And then the other thing is they talk about stories. Stories, stories, stories are the things. So whatever, so if you're trying to change the culture, find a story. Find a story that gets you where you want to go that actually happens. And if you don't have a story, find, get one, like somehow, like create it. Like not, don't make it up, but somehow get that story to happen and bring people along that journey. And then um, obsessively share the story. So you've known me for a really long time. How, have you ever heard the story about Calencia? Calencia, the girl in Haiti who we raised all that money for, she had a hole in her heart. I, I, and if you guys want me to hear, if you actually want to hear that story, it's, it's mind-blowing. Um, and it deals with sticky face stuff um, with kids and adults working together and stuff. But uh, I've probably told that story 150 times at Frontline. And then what happens is other people start sharing it, and then other people start sharing it, and other people start sharing it. And then that story made its way into the Sticky Faith book because it had been shared so many times. And so it just constantly just gained traction. So find small wins in your church and then start sharing those wins and saying, that's where we want to go, people. Like, get those wins out there because people will follow. Because if, if vision is shared stories of future hope and you can get people to realize their preferred future, they'll almost always track with that. So oftentimes we just try to tell people something without experiencing it or without them experiencing it, and people won't track in the same way. But if they can experience it, it matters. That's why sermons, sermons are one of the only things in our world today that are told and not experienced. And so this guy's a little controversial in the church world, and I apologize for this, but it's why Peter Rollins is so brilliant at what he does. And you were with me in Grand Rapids at this conference, and when, you, when I left that conference, or I left that session, Remember what I said? I was like, dude, that guy scares me. Like, I, I really am struggling with what he's saying, and I don't know if I agree with him theologically, all this stuff, but one of the things he talked about is this idea of something called theodrama. It's like kind of mixing theology and drama, this experience, because the sermon is one of the only things that is told and not experienced in our world today. Today, we, we, we love experiencing things, but the sermon is just a lecture oftentimes. And so if you can get people to understand what he calls the rupture or the experience of things, people will change. And so they'll experience the rupture when you share stories and give them the experience of it. And if they can track along with the experience, the change process is a lot easier, right? So you could probably tell people that easier. I mean, like, that's, yeah, because you were there. It's so good. That stuff's helpful. But anyway, what else, what are the thoughts you guys have? What do you, what's milling in your brain? Can, what connected, what didn't, yeah. Hmm. But men are idiots. <laughs> yeah. I have no idea. That's a good question. Because women are definitely more relational. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. What I've found is that what I've found is that men in general are difficult to get on board with, especially like religious spiritual stuff. But when they do, it is phenomenal. And so when you get a men's group that cares about being a men's group in your church. It is huge. And there is research to show and suggest, and I, 
I'm really careful not to share research oftentimes if I don't have the source in front of me. So I'm really sorry because I don't have the source of where this is from. I know Barna's done a little bit of research about this, but there is research that suggests very strongly that if a congregation gets to a certain percentage of women, the de- congregation actually starts to decline as opposed to a certain congregation of men. And if, if, I mean, a certain percentage of men. And if a certain percentage of men gets into the church, this, the congregation actually starts to grow. And if you think about one of the reasons why, it's probably because when a, when a man jumps into a leadership role, and I hear me on this, I'm e- egalitarian or whatever it is. I believe in women in ministry and ordaining women and stuff like that. And so I'm not saying anything about gender roles here, but when you can get a husband or a dad on board with Christianity, it's huge, as opposed to a mom or a wife feeling like they're slogging through that leadership process. And so I was just talking to somebody the other day, and they were like, they were just struggling because their husband is not taking the lead in their family, and they don't really know how to do it, and it's not, there's not really a big response or whatever, and so they were just struggling through that. And, um, and I wonder if that's the case. So I don't know much about gender stuff, and I wish that I had that research in front of you and actual numbers because um, – yeah, I don't want it to get misconstrued or me to say the wrong thing, but it's interesting. I know Barna's done some stuff with it, but. best volunteers we have in our church um, or in our children's ministry are two groups of people, senior citizens and middle school students. It's phenomenal. It's ridiculous how, how helpful. Yeah. And middle school students can speak into a, an elementary children's, an elementary child's life in a way that nobody else can because they just came out of it. And so as long as they're paired with a really solid adult mentors, um, we love having middle school students in, involved. One of the things we did, um, now I'm guessing getting onto the, the, the middle school student thing, the serving thing, and not necessarily the seniors, senior citizens, is when we cut our Sunday morning programming, one of the ways that redeemed the situation and people weren't so mad is we, so we run two services on our Sunday, uh, Sunday morning, 9.30 and 11.15, and we said that we wanted students to attend one service and to serve one service. And so what's been really cool is that the students who serve, most likely parents are serving because they have to bring them there. So parents have now started serving as a result of kids serving. But we have more, um, we have more middle school volunteers in our, uh, in our elementary children's ministry than we do adults right now. And we have 137, I just heard the other number the other day, we have 137 children's ministry volunteers. And so this is just elementary, not early childhood. But um, that's really intriguing. It's really intriguing. And so the service that kids want to do, this is the most civic-minded generation in the history of any generation ever. Like, kids don't want to sit in a lecture like this. You want to actually go do stuff. Like, you would much rather do that. And uh, even more than my generation, I'm 32. I just turned 32. But this, this generation of kids is so civic-minded and want to help in such a profound way. And they feel useless if they're not helping. Is that true? I guess... What's funny is it's like totally segregated right now. That's interesting. I just noticed that. Wow. Yeah, fascinating. That's really intriguing. Um, <clears throat> I wonder why that happened naturally. Why did that happen? 
I want to talk about that. I would never say that. Why did that happen? I'm curious. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. That's good. That's logical. That's good. Would you have sat on that side? Yeah. Okay. It's good. It's fair. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. True. really interesting <laughs> you're in your seat right third row back first seat in don't you dare take my seat kind of thing right I love it uh that's good you know what I want to do I want to push everybody one side of the room let's do it hold on don't let the old people get up I'm totally kidding <laughs> sorry well I don't care who goes I was just kidding So let's take a couple minutes and introduce yourselves and say hi and where you're from and how long you've been here at the school or what you do. For real. All right. Um, man, this is like moving a tree. It's really heavy. Um, so let's, uh, let's um, jump back in. Sorry, I'm totally ruining good conversation, but um, I heard Smitty's being talked about and chicken wraps and um, yeah. Uh, so any other thoughts before we jump into another session? I'm just, I'm, I don't want to, um, I don't want to just talk and I can easily just do that because I've got eight hours of content. And so, um, yeah. To leaders. Here's what, here's what I would get that wasn't on there. So I was, I co-wrote, or I collaborated on a project called the Sticky Faith Launch Kit with 10 other pastors um, and, and the people from Fuller, the folks from Fuller. And uh, what it is, is it's how to implement Sticky Faith in your church in six months. I mean, as simple as that is. And so it costs a little bit more. It's, I think it, I got it for like 36 bucks or something like that. And it's a, it's a fairly thick book, but then what you get is you get access to an online network of videos you get all you get like all of these presentations um and you can do parent seminars um, volunteer seminars those kinds of things it's i think it's about 20 videos on there and so if you if your lead pastor's not here and you want him or her to <coughs> to engage in this stuff i would get the sticky faith launch kit you could like <laughs> you mean here <laughs> um yeah, I would get that for sure. And then it's got all the access to every, like it's got access to everything, like even videos I'm not even showing today. Um, it's it's really good. The, the whole tale of the whole tale of two tables thing. It's actually a video that accompanies it, and we had already talked about it a little bit, and so I wasn't going to show a video. It would have just been like a, it would have been a two minute video to recap what I had already said. But it's really well done, and it's um, it's just really intriguing. It's just, it asks really good questions, and so you'll get. Tons of videos. One of the things they talk about, which I didn't even discuss in the gospel thing, is that they talk about how the gospel often functions like a jacket that people put it on when they want to use it, and they take it off when they want to take it off. And jackets get like trampled, and um, the they it gets like 
stacked under things oftentimes. And so um, that, that analogy of the gospel is like a jacket to kids is really intriguing. That one's, that one's really interesting. There's a whole video on um, this guy named Tim Clydesdale. Does anybody know Tim Clydesdale? Alan, you know Tim Clydesdale? He's a psychologist. He has this, um, he has this thing called the identity lockbox. Does that name ring a bell? Identity lockbox, yeah. So um, it's a really common idea. And one of the things that they were talking about is how um, kids, when they leave, when they leave um, the, <clears throat> when they leave the church, or they when they leave high school and they go to college or whatever, is that their identity actually they they actually take their identity. It's, it's and it's is as if they lock it up, and um, and they don't use it. Like I know it sounds weird, but. Uh, it, it's like you take your Bible, which you have, and you just kind of lock it away in yourself, and you don't actually take time to be practical and use it and stuff like that. And so there's a whole video on the identity lockbox with Tim Clydesdale, which is really intriguing, um, that kind of stuff. So that's what I would recommend getting. So. Yeah, like department, yeah, yeah. departments and stuff. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah, I wasn't gonna talk about that. Are you guys interested in that? Is that is that something you guys want to talk about? So like one of the things that so we still have age appropriate small groups from birth through high school at Frontline, and um. What we tell kids is if a kid doesn't want to go to age-appropriate programming or if they want to go into an, uh, like a small group with their parents or if there are a couple seniors that want to jump into a small group to see what a small group is like, then we won't tell them not to come. And what we have to be okay with in the church, for those of you who are lead pastors, I'm just going to encourage you to be okay with this. If you, when, you, when you shift to become intergenerational, it's almost inevitable that the program numbers that you have will go down for your student ministry. But the amount of kids in weekly discipleship will rise. And so when you say how many kids are you, when a lot of people ask us how many kids are in our youth group, I, I, ask, them, I ask them this question. I go, are you asking how many kids are in age-appropriate programming on Wednesday and Sunday nights, or how many kids are in weekly discipleship? Because those are two completely different things. So if you're looking for a number on how big our youth group is, I think there's two different numbers for you. There's kids who choose to be in age-appropriate programming, and then there's kids who choose to um, who choose to go to intergenerational small groups, and we have to be okay with that. And so, understanding that numbers might be lower, um, but weekly discipleship for students might be higher is is something we we have we have to be okay with, and it's challenging. It's challenging to be okay with those numbers as a boss and as a boss of the spiritual formation department, where numbers matter and they're really important. It's challenging to be okay with that. And I'm the one who said it was okay. <laughs> like, it's really hard still. So, because we, we love numbers and we love measurables. And so, anyway, so what we're, uh, let's go through your, a couple of your questions because they were important. So one was, how much do you do intergenerational stuff versus how much do you do age-appropriate stuff? Right. I would say the majority of what we do is probably age-appropriate. But the intentional things that we do for intergenerational stuff is really intergenerational. So we still run programs, we still do things like age appropriately, but we try to we try to have like so children's ministry. We have every student who serves has a mentor, every single one. Um, we 
yeah, mostly just age appropriate stuff. Because otherwise, like a lot of a lot of places, like if you there's um there's a DVD right now that or it came out a few years ago. Oh, I can't think of the name of it. Don't watch it. Um, <laughs> but uh, man, it's this it's this shift in movement and youth ministry where they're trying to just completely eradicate age appropriate programming. Oh, what is it called? Does anybody know? Anybody? Can you think of what it's called? Do you guys know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I don't remember. But there's this huge movement where they're trying to eradicate it, and I would say that's not healthy. We have to have age-appropriate programming. So probably the majority of it is age-appropriate, but we're really intentional about putting stuff in regularly. Any one of our major events that we do, we do um, four major events for children's ministry every year. We um, always have intergenerational stuff in there, always connect it, um, that kind of stuff. Maybe once every, like, four weeks, there's an intergenerational like moment in our services in some way in some capacity and then the other three weeks are more multi-generational so yeah the smaller the church the easier it is to do by the way the bigger the church way harder it is to do sorry yeah yep yep so they'll like text them throughout the week or call them they might bring them out to go do coffee um, that kind of thing. And we're not naive. I don't want to make it sound like every mentor is just God sent to mentoring. Like not every mentor is going to be as awesome as another mentor. Kind of like parents, like not every parent is going to, not every parent who we ask to do stuff with is going to do it. And, but our job is not to get parents to do stuff. Our job is to provide the resourcing and equipping, um, uh, opportunities so that they hopefully do it. Like, I can't, we can't force anybody to do things. We can vision cast and hopefully they will do it. So it's kind of like mentors. Like, so yeah, they, they do as much as possible and they'll, they're there. Um, they, they, we try to have volunteers serve every week in children's ministry and sometimes it's every other week, but they're there. They serve together all the time. And so there's this, um, this girl who, uh, she's in our small group and um, actually we're in Canada. Her boyfriend is, was drafted 33rd overall in the NHL draft in 1997 by the Lightning. How cool is that? He goes to our church. That's neato. Um, anyway, <laughs> but uh, she um, she is uh, 31, I think, and she mentors um, a 15-year-old girl. And so they will come 10 minutes before the program, um, for or before their Sunday morning program, and just talk. And, like, this girl who she's mentoring, I was just talking to her the other day, she's like, on this guy kick right now and like she's got this guy drama and so this girl Anessa the, the the mentor was just like what do I do I don't think I really care about this like guy problem stuff and I was like it's okay you don't need to <laughs> like it's just as long as you're there for her it's okay you know I mean just pro- help her process through but that stuff is just we know what it's like to have high school relationships right so it's okay I mean like that kind of stuff but she was asking like what do I do I want to help but like I'm not I don't really I want to tell her it doesn't matter and I'm like tell her it doesn't matter it's okay <laughs> Like, not a big deal. So, so I mean, just 10 minutes beforehand is really good um, and helpful. So, yeah, and it's hard to do. It's hard to keep, I'll tell you what's hard to do is it's hard to keep up with. It, it's easy to implement, but then as new volunteers and new students come, it's really hard to keep that. We call it, um, Scott Cormode, this, this guy from Fuller, he calls it maintaining disciplined attention. And so part of the change process that's really helpful is to understand how you maintain disciplined attention, whether it's you as a staff meeting together regularly or, or a group of volunteers meeting together regularly, um, constantly vision casting, because Bill Hybels would say that vision leaks. So vision is like if you have a cup and there's a hole in the bottom of it and there's constantly liquid falling out of the cup unless you're refilling the cup, right? So um, 
vision is like that. You have to constantly refill the cup, otherwise it will run dry. And so what's really hard is actually not implementing it, it's maintaining it after new people start coming. It was that's what we ran into with the stories of future hope thing. It's because our our youth group grow our youth group grew and we had all these people who written who'd written stories of future hope for um for kids that were in youth group, but as new kids came along, it got harder and harder and harder for small group leaders to keep up with the small uh, with the stories of future hope. So, um, so it's kind of maintaining that disciplined attention there. So, yeah, if you guys weren't here for that at the beginning, now you're really sufficiently confused because you don't know what that means. So, um, it was like way back at the beginning, like eight thirty when we started talking about that. Sorry, that's confusing, but yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> there was so Fuller's study was in larger urban areas, um, and uh, but but diversity was uh, was not a part of this study as much as they wanted it to be. What's really good though is that Fuller has a relationship with oh man, the guy named Larry Acosta is the guy who leads the who leads this ministry, and I can't think, the Urban Youth Ministry Trainers Cohort or something like that. Um, and they are doing a lot of stuff with, um, like, more inner-city urban areas as opposed to, like, our study wasn't inner-city, but it was urban, if that makes sense. So um, I don't know I don't know those numbers off the top of my head, but I know that there's more research being done, and um, uh, where there's more, more research being done now. And then what else is nice is that Fuller has something called the Sticky Faith Learning Cohort. And so it, um, they've worked with about 125 or 130 churches now that um, are all over the country um, that are processing a lot of this stuff well. And this last cohort that they had were tons of like inner city urban churches. And so um, Ephraim Smith, you guys know who, or Ephraim Smith, you guys know who that is? The big speaker. He were, um, is, I think he's at a church in Minneapolis. So it's one of the biggest like urban um, African-American majority churches in the country, and they were a part of the cohort this past year. So that was a big thing. And so I know that they're learning from a lot of churches in the practice of it, but I don't know that we have a lot of research right now, if that makes sense. Does that make sense? Is that what you were asking? So. Okay. Yeah. 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 Interesting. I wonder if there, I don't know if there's a list of the churches that have been part of the Sticky Faith cohort, but um, I wonder if we could get a list of those just to see where they are. I don't know. Because the cohort churches are the ones that are implementing all of this research. And so they're, what I like about what Fuller is doing is Fuller recognizes that without the local church, their research means nothing. And we realize that without their research, our practice means nothing. And so we have to have both. There's a give and take there. And so what they've learned what they've learned so much from, from the practical setting is how this is playing itself out in local churches. So, yeah. Yeah. I'm glad you said it because, uh, so one of the things I talk about in Join Generations, this book I wrote in the fall, is um, how in almost every single 
place that I know and leaders that I know, all these leaders are looking to giant churches to see what they're doing. So um, we are really curious about what New Spring Church is doing and, we're, and, and Perry Noble. And we're really curious about what Elevation Church is doing. And P.S. Don't make coloring books of your lead pastor, okay? So if anybody knows what's going on there, Elevation Church has coloring books of Stephen Furtick that they give to their children's ministry, which is really, really interesting um, and kind of disturbing. So, um, but anyway, nonetheless, that's a large growing church. Uh, Saddleback, Willow Creek. I mean, like a lot of these bigger churches, what I've found in the years that I've been doing this, and I'll be honest, I had to let go of a little bit of pride with this because I only wanted to learn from bigger churches and bigger settings, is that I've realized that as we become more intergenerational and as we're seeking more of this, the best way to learn is actually from smaller country churches. That's the best way to learn how to do intergenerational ministry. And so what we've been really, what I've been really excited about is talking to smaller country church pastors who have been implementing this stuff and then asking, how does that get implemented in a larger context like Frontline, as opposed to what can we do there? Because the larger Larger churches are fledgling with intergenerational stuff right now. It's very difficult. The larger and more professionalized and segregated your ministries are, the harder it is to implement a lot of these sticky faith values. So um, I'm glad you said that because I think you're absolutely right on. I think you're dead on. The other thing is, I wish I had the, again, I'm saying research that I don't have the actual source for right now, but I, I heard somewhere that small country churches are sending three times as many people into full-time ministry as larger urban churches fascinating and then I so I grew up at Holton Wesleyan Church where you grew up and so um dude the amount of people that Holton Wesleyan Church has sent out in Holton Maine in this little country church to be in full-time ministry is just ridiculous right Dean Saban you've been here for a long time Holton Wesleyan Church there's it's a small country church it's not tiny it's not like 50 it's not when I say that it's not 50 people it's like more like 300 people but it's still it's yeah it's still small um, compared to like a lot of the mega churches that we think are most effective, if that makes sense. And there, I love larger churches. I love what larger churches have to offer. I love working in a larger church, but we're missing out um, on what country churches are doing. So if you're in a small country church, please teach us well. Um. Yes. <laughs> I have no idea how it grows. I have no idea why people are showing up. Other than like the spirit of God is moving. Um, there's probably an element to it that our staff, the majority of our staff is young. And so you typically attract younger, you typically attract the people who you're on the, you typically attract the demographic within a five years or so of the person who's on the stage. And so our lead pastor is 37. He's young. I'm 32. I preach at least a third of the time. I'm a teaching pastor there too. So at least a third of the time I teach or I preach. And so he's on the stage all the time, the rest of the times. Um, and so I think probably the staff age is a little bit younger. Uh, our, our music is loud. That's probably it. We, we play a lot of hymns, actually. Actually, the, the more intergenerational we become, the more hymns we've been playing. I, I actually have grown to love hymns, um, but we don't have like a pipe organ or anything like that. But yeah, so yeah, but I really don't know. 
it's like it's it's almost like it's viral. Like once somebody starts coming, and then it starts coming, and then they start coming, and they start coming, and then you become known as the church that reaches young adult reaches young adults. Um, yeah, I don't know. We all, by the way, some of you ask, some of you might ask um, at some point, do we have a young adult program at Frontline? It's called Sunday morning at 9:30 and 11:15. We don't do a separate age-appropriate program for young adults. We tried it one time. Keep in mind, we have hundreds of young adults coming, 18 to 29 years old. We tried to do a separate age-appropriate program for, middle, or for, for, um, for young adults. We called it Sequoia, and we based it on this idea that Sequoia trees like grow really big and all this stuff. And we averaged 12 people that year at this program. So we joked that Sequoia tree is deader than any Sequoia tree that has ever died. It is deader than dead. It nearly killed me. I, I was terrible. But people, people wanted to come to a church service and really had no desire to come to a program, even though they said they wanted to come to the program. We want something for us. We want something for us. And so then we tried it. Twelve people came. Done. We're not doing that anymore. But then you have hundreds of people coming on a Sunday morning. It's really intriguing. So, that's, so when people ask, do you have a young adult program? I'm like, we do. And there's hundreds of people. And they're like, really, when is it? And I'm like, Right now, 9.30, 11.15. They don't like that, so it's a little sarcastic. So, um, yeah. Yeah. Want to move on? Sticky families? Um, talk to me. One of, the, one of the things that I wanted to process through is how we perpetuate dry cleaning in the church. And so let's talk about dry cleaning. What did you guys have for discussion time? It would have been that, I think it was the, the first discussion time. We went through. How do you? How do we um, perpetuate, maybe unintentionally or intentionally, dry cleaning in the church? You guys remember the? You guys remember this? Like w- the concept, right? Okay. Yeah. Because it is super easy. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and one of the things I think is interesting about what you just said, Brent, is uh, we have to put a lot of trust in parents, and forgive me for probably making a blanket statement that I shouldn't make, but we as pastors who have our degrees want to be the experts, and we don't want other people to be the experts, or maybe we don't trust that other people could be experts or know as much as us, so we're the ones who know everything, because we're the ones who are educated on it, and so uh, we don't trust that parents are going to do a good enough job leading them. And it's because we haven't resourced and equipped parents enough to do it. <coughs> yeah. <laughs> right. 
Yeah, is that is that something that's common in your churches? Is tracking down parents of kids who don't um, the parents don't come? Yeah, it's big for us. We have probably half the kids who are come to our student ministry programming, their parents don't come to our church, and so it's tracking them down is a really difficult thing. Yeah, and they're often unchurched. I mean, most people at Frontline are unchurched anyway. Man, they're unchurched. <laughs> and so, um, and so, yeah, we deal with a lot of that. Yeah, I agree. So one of the ways that we perpetuate this idea, and I think I talked about this earlier, is that in the old model of churches, it was the church teaches and parents reinforce, as opposed to what we really want to get to is how the church can, um, or the, how the parents can teach and the church can reinforce. So I'll give you a very simple way that we we perpetuated the old model of dry cleaning. One of the ways that we did this, and maybe you do this too, is we run the orange curriculum, which I was talking about earlier, the 252 basic stuff. And one of the things they do is they give something called a parent queue. In the parent queue, it goes, it gives you as parents a list of questions to ask your kids um, after they're done the services uh, <clears throat> that are based upon that week's lesson, which is in theory a really good idea, right? That's a cool idea. And so we give these parent cues to parents and um, they're able to have these conversations with their kids. Well, what we realized was happening was we were unintentionally teaching dry cleaning because we're the ones who are going to teach you first and then you can ask the questions afterwards. So the way we changed that was instead of asking, instead of giving them a sheet with that week's questions, now we give them a sheet with the next week's questions. It's really simple, super simple. Now, Again, I'm not naive. Not every parent on the planet is doing it. We're not, I, I would say, we have a good majority of parents who do it, uh, but not every single parent's gonna do it. But what I like about it is, even if parents don't do it right now, what we're teaching them is, it's your job to talk about this first. Because wouldn't it be cool if a kid was sitting in our programs on Sunday morning, and they, we were talking about something, and they leaned over, and they said, hey, we just talked about this on Wednesday, right? Like, wouldn't that be cool? And what that does is it, it takes away that dry cleaning mentality of the church teaches first and then the parents reinforce. What we're trying to get them to do is to go, parents, you teach first, we'll reinforce what you're teaching. And all we want to do in this role is we want to resource and equip you to do it. So we want to resource ahead of time and equip ahead of time. So it's a, that's a really simple way to get rid of or to, to move away from dry cleaning is to get Get to a spot where you ask the next, you're having them ask the next week's questions, um, that kind of stuff. So, um, yeah. So th- I don't know. That kind of stuff is helpful. We created a we created a, a private Facebook group um, for parents who were interested in in some of this stuff, and we started just inviting parents to be a part of this conversation. And what we would do is I would literally like on my MacBook I would record a three minute video that was really really like crappy quality. It wasn't good quality. It wasn't like full 1080p HD or anything like that. Um, I would just record it on my MacBook and I would have a three minute conversation about a sticky faith principle like dry cleaning. And I would just say, hey, we've been learning about this concept called dry cleaning. Um, or we've been learning about this concept about this Red Bull ripoff or, or something like that. And we just took the chunks of the sticky face stuff. And every single week we put a three to four minute video on this private Facebook group and uploaded it, and then we just said, if you're going to be in the group, then you have to um, then you have to engage at least one time throughout the week in conversation on this video. And so, um, 
what, was ha- what ended up happening was we just started resourcing parents and parents started engaging in this conversation and then taking action on it. And all we were doing was resourcing and they were the ones teaching and we were just reinforcing, right? Does that make sense? So, um, so reinforcing to teaching, uh, or I'm sorry, resourcing to teaching to reinforcing is kind of the model that we've tried to use. And um, here's what was awesome about that is before we had parents, if we did like an event, we would have parents there like two, three, four times a year where we could share this kind of stuff. So, um, and then with volunteers, the same sort of thing. We would get volunteers together like twice a year for these large volunteer meetings. And what was awesome about the way we, the, about what unintentionally happened with this, we didn't even think about it, was all of a sudden we had the opportunity to vision cast every single week. Every single week. And it's cool because everybody's on Facebook. Most people are on Facebook. And they're on Facebook at random times. So they didn't have to be there Saturday morning at 10 a.m. They could just go watch the video at any time they wanted. And so we went from having a few times a year of vision casting to 52 times a year of vision casting. So the maintaining disciplined attention thing um, was just perpetuated because we were able to record these videos. And it literally took me like four minutes. I mean, I just looked at the principal and I was like, yeah, that makes sense. I guess I'll talk about that. And so we just put a list of things together and made some videos and it was really, really successful. Um, And then, so here's the issue. You might be asking, why don't you do it anymore? Because it's really hard to keep up on doing videos as a leader. It's our fault. This is why it's so hard to do. It's our issue because we're the ones who stopped posting videos every single, so it worked for probably a year and a half. And then it slowly just kind of dissipated. It's not the parents' fault. It's the church's fault for not resourcing. Are you with me on this? I think we blame a lot of parents for not wanting to do it, but we're not the ones resourcing. And so it went super well for a year and a half, but if I can just be honest about failure, we, it just dissipated. And maybe it just ran its course, and maybe it was just for a period of time that it worked, but um, trying, to, trying to just yeah sort that through. Parents lead the way. Um, on the Parents have to lead the way. We... Um, we We expect parents to do so little oftentimes. And we have to have an expectation that parents do more. And when you give that challenge to parents, they'll do it. They really will do it. Um, And so the reason why there's a picture of um, frames on here is because it reminds me to tell a story about picture frames. Uh, Not kidding. Um, So uh, there's this uh, woman who goes to our church, and she's a single mom. And she's got, (coughs) like, I think an 8-year-old or a 10-year-old boy. And uh, so she's single and kind of from a broken home, and she's divorced. And so she has, she really wants male influences to be in her son's life. But because she's single and she's divorced, the dad's not really in the picture. And so she doesn't have an opportunity to, um, to, to, for men to be in, in their boy's life um, or a dad to figure be in their boy's life. So what she's tried to do is she's tried to figure out how can I get men in our church or men who I trust to be able to pour into my boy. And so they do these like experience adventure type things. And whenever they do the adventure, they'll take a picture and she'll print the picture off and put it in a picture frame. And there's a hallway in her house that is full of picture frames of people who are investing in her son's life. And she's trying, what she's trying to do is she's actually taking the initiative. She's trying to surround her son with godly male influences because her son needs godly male influences right now. And so parents have to lead the way on this um, in a big way. Now, 
I want to shift for a second because there are a lot of us who are leaders in here. And one of the things that I think can easily happen, and one of the things I'll own it can easily happen to me, is I can go and I can talk about sticky faith and and intentionally just talk about other churches and forget about what this means for me, about what this means for me. And so for a second, I want to talk about our own families and how we lead our own families, because if we don't lead our own families well, how can we equip other people to lead their families well, right? So there's, um, in, their, in their study, one of the things they found was this boy named Anthony and this boy named Dale. And Anthony said this, said, even though my mother was actually working for the church for a while, or working at the church for a while as the music minister, um, we didn't talk about faith at home. Still don't talk about it at home. And then Dale wrote, on the other end of the spectrum, they were probably the biggest influence. And I know that if my parents hadn't shown me through example what it was to be a Christian, I probably would have had a very difficult time doing it. Like, I think that those, that's a dichotomy right there, right? And there's two different worlds going on. Um, I, do you guys know who Dan Seaborn is? You guys know Dan Seaborn? He runs a ministry called Winning at Home. It's based out of Holland, Michigan. He's, he speaks it all the time at different places. He's an r- incredible speaker. I saw him speaking one time, and uh, he's been a pastor for a really, really long time, and uh, successful by numbers anyway, worked at big churches. And one of the things that he said when he was speaking is he said he got home one day from work, and his wife looked at him and said, when are you going to pray with me like you pray with the people at church? Whoa. When are you going to pray with me like you pray with the people at your church? So I heard that, and we're at a marriage conference, my wife and I, and it ruined me. Here's the thing that's interesting is that, like, so my wife and I pray together all the time. We pray together. I pray with her every single morning, and we pray together every single night. Um, so we'll pray together twice a day. But what's fascinating is that I, it's easier oftentimes for me to pray with people at my church who don't know my weaknesses and all the struggles that I have. It's easier for me to act like I'm perfect and be like Pastor Matt. It's really hard for me to pray with my wife when I know she knows all the junk that I deal with. And so as families, we have to embrace what this means for our families. And so if you're students in here and you're not married yet, um, please pray with your wives. And so one of the ways that this has changed me, and I'm, I'm, I have kind of a brash personality, if you haven't, <laughs> if you haven't been able to tell. I, I, so I'll do premarital counseling with couples. And at some point along the line in premarital counseling, I will literally just ask them this question. I'll go, uh, when both of them are there, I'll go, um, when's the last time you guys prayed together? Not do you guys pray together or have you guys prayed together? When, the la- when is the last time you guys prayed together? And sometimes, like the couple I just married, they were like, oh, this morning. And then sometimes they'll both look at each other and their eyes will get really big. And they'll be like, I, um, it's been like months. So I'll literally say to them, when you go home tonight, or when you go away tonight, hopefully not home. <laughs> That's awkward. Um, but it is frontline. We deal with everything. So, um, but when you leave here, the first thing you should be doing is you should pray together. And I'll literally, people, I don't, I don't even know how to pray together. I'll figure it out. That's what you need prayer for. If we can't pray with our own families and lead our own families, we are going to have a very, very difficult time leading the people in our church. And it won't go well. It has been so, so difficult to lead my family spiritually. I wish that it was an easy thing. Am I alone here or not? 
It's so difficult to be diligent and maintain disciplined attention at your own home. And it's way easier to go do it in your church where it's your job. Okay, but our roles are obviously my family is first. And so, like, I realized about six months into Isaiah being alive, I realized that my wife and I seldom prayed for our son. And when we put him to bed at night, we were there. We didn't pray for our son very often. And I, uh, I just said, you know what? Every single night we have to pray for our son. And, and last night I didn't pray for him. I didn't get a chance. I was at Brent's house and we were playing on FaceTiming, my wife and I, and I was going to pray with my son and we had just never worked out for us to connect that night. Never, I, it was like, it was awkward for me to not pray for my son last night because every single night when we go to bed, we pray for him and we pray for his future. So like um, maybe and this might not be new to you guys at all because I'm just, I'm young. But one of the things that I've realized is that um, I need to be praying for my son 30 years down the road when he has a family and kids. And I need to be praying for his spouse. And I need to be praying for his job and how much he loves Jesus. Because when I start praying for those things, it starts making me more intentional about how I lead him as a family or as a, as a, as a dad and leading my uh, wife as a husband, right? And so, uh, man, I pray that we don't end up in Anthony's camp over here and we end up in Dale's camp as leaders at the church, as leaders in the church. And, and students in here, it will be so difficult to live that out. I mean, it is beautiful, it's wonderful. When it actually happens, it's easy, but actually keeping that intentional is a really, really difficult thing. So talk about that with me for a minute. Is, is, am I the only one? Wow. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Wow. You just went up like a hundred cool dad points in my book right there. <laughs> That's just fantastic. Yeah. No. Yeah. And it's easy to stop and stop for like three weeks kind of thing. Like it's, it, you, I think we think to ourselves, well, We'll just pick it up tomorrow. It's hard work to, to like, jump back in because then it gets more awkward. It's just, man, but pr pray with your wives or your husbands and pray with your kids diligently. So I just want to make sure to at least say that sticky faith is not about other people um, entirely. It's about how we live this out ourselves. Does that make sense? So, yeah. Yeah. I'm going to come, I'm getting to that in a few slides. Yeah, because that's fascinating. Yeah, can I, can I wait to talk about that? Because I will get to it in just a few minutes. Yeah, because that's really intriguing. So um, let me ask you this first. Uh, <clears throat> when I ask this question, it might be an unclear question, so I hope it's not, but what percentage of your time as a leader do you give to parents? And when I say that, I mean to clarify it to say intentional, like intentionally giving resourcing and equipping parents to be good, godly parents. Because one of the things they found in their research is that home, there were three things that they basically found in their research. One was intergenerational ministry and intergenerational relationships and worship. The second thing was godly, actually the second thing was um, actually serving together as families 
or serving together in the church, basically. And then the third thing was godly biblical parenting, where the people serve together, mostly. So if parenting is, is huge and the crux of it, what percentage of your time as a leader do you give to parents? Just process that for a second. I won't actually ask you to say it out loud, but just whether you're a youth pastor or whatever, what, what, time, what percentage of your time do you give as parent, to parents? Okay? Now, the next question is this. What percent, and now knowing this, what percentage of your time as a leader do you wish you gave to parents? What time, or what percentage of time uh, as a leader do you wish you gave to parents? I was at a conference in Atlanta listening to Kara Powell speak on this stuff. And when that question came up, <laughs> that one stung for me. Because I think we know how important it is to resource and educate and equip parents. But the amount of time that I'm spending doing it, no, but my time, my time has to be spent doing sermon prep. And my time has to be spent doing all of these different things. And so um, I really reevaluated how much I spent with parents. And so uh, throwing this out there is just a model for youth ministry. Some people think it's good and some people don't. What ended up happening to me as a youth pastor was that the longer I was in youth ministry and the more students I actually oversaw, the less time I spent with students and the more time I spent with volunteers and parents. So I was a, I was a youth pastor, but mostly a youth pastor to moms and dads and volunteer leaders. And one of the people who taught me about that most was a guy named Clint Usher. <laughs> Clint Usher taught, talked to me about that so much, about how the, the, thing, the way that he saw the huge win for his youth ministry was when he gave more time to volunteers and parents. And here's the reason why. When you have, when you have students in your youth group um, and they get to a certain point or a certain number, it's almost ineffective for you to be able to spend that amount of time with kids and, but what's not ineffective is when you pour into a volunteer leader who can spend time with, those fi with five kids. So it's hard to spend time with 100 kids. It's easy to spend time with five kids. And so I really sorted through and really poured my life into about a dozen kids and then poured the rest of my time into volunteers and parents. And so that question wrecked me. And I would say I probably spent 50% of my time with parents after that question. So sort that through. Let me ask you this. What does this mean if your pastor's in here for your job descriptions, if you were to take it seriously? Would that ruin the whole thing? No? Yeah. 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 That's good. Say that one more time, because I was opening the slide, and I want to pay attention to it. Say it again. I got it, but I want to hear it again. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. That'll preach. That's good. Have you guys ever heard of something called the Dunbar number or the Dunbar effect? So the Dunbar number is research that's been done about how many quality relationships we can actually have with people. And that number with the rise in social media is actually going down. It's interesting. Like, we, because we're so consumed in trying to have relationships on social media, and let's be honest, everybody knows that relationships are at least somewhat 
not real on social media, but sort of real on social media. But the actual number of people that we're actually able to relate with is going down. And so if that's the case, how can we train more people and create webs of people um, to, uh, to help the people, to, to help those in our church, right? And so um, we, there's this illustration, and I wish I had like a ball of yarn, uh, but I didn't travel with it. But there's this thing where we talk about like the web of relationships and how important it is. And so what you do is you actually get in a circle, and then there's like a kid in the middle or somebody who's young in the middle. And you take this ball of yarn, and you start throwing the ball of yarn, and you hold your little piece of yarn, you throw it. And eventually what ends up happening is you're creating an entire like spider web type thing around that kid. And you realize that all of the people that are around that kid are infiltrating their lives and surrounding them and going around them and um, somehow changing them, right? And so it's just a cool visual of seeing that. And so if you want to do like, do that on your stage, talk about that. Like get a ball of yarn and just start throwing it and holding the end of it and chucking it, holding the end of it and chucking it. And eventually you'll see that web is um, all over the place. And in, in, in um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, authority comes from a bunch of different places and relationships come from a different place. So uh, share your conversion story. So I'll get to this. Um, what, this is not scientific by any means, okay? So I just want to be clear about this. But as they were doing their research they were, and they were doing the study, what they started realizing was this, uh, was, was something really interesting happening with parents and sharing their conversion stories and kids and uh, that kind of stuff. And so they asked 20 kids in a row who were, remember, these kids are directly connected in churches. Uh, they asked 20 kids in a row how many parents had shared their story of faith conversion with them. It's really intriguing, right? How many story of parents? Uh, how many? How many parents had shared their story of faith conversion with their kids? So, out of the twenty, just throw out a number. What, what, what are your thoughts? Four out of twenty. Two out of twenty. Anybody else? Eight out of twenty. Zero. It's a goose egg. Zero. Here's the other thing they found. They found a trend, and again, not scientific, so I want to be careful about this, but they found a trend in their study during this portion of their study that those parents who had actually shared their story of faith conversion with their kids actually dealt where they actually transitioned their faith much better after they left. So I was talking to my dad about this recently, and my dad, my mom and dad raised Catholic, or raised me Catholic, and they both now go to a Wesleyan church, um, but newer to faith and that kind of thing. My dad was like struggling with that. I was like, well, why would that why would it be easier to transition your faith? And I think, I think the reason why it's easier to transition your faith is because they, um, when mom and dad is able to share their story of faith conversion, the kid no longer vicariously lives that faith journey through their mom and dad because they know that's their story. That's my mom and dad's story. But before you, get, before you hear that that's their story, kids oftentimes take that story as their own. And so before they graduate, what I think is happening, if they haven't had their faith, faith story, uh, that conversion story shared, is I think what's happening is kids think that their story is their story, but it's actually mommy and daddy's story. And so when you can share your story and differentiate your story, kids start processing, okay, well, that's my mom and dad's story. What's my story? And this is where like, that self-authorship and ownership of faith comes into play. It's where the intimacy with God comes into play because when you think that when you end up living vicariously through your mom and dad's story, intimacy isn't as deep, right? It's, it's really not even there. And so if they can live, that's where you start viewing Jesus as Santa Claus, right? Where he comes and goes when you please. Um, and so 
so, so I think that there's something to be said about this faith conversion thing. I talked about this guy, or I, t- I said this quote earlier, and I didn't attach it to anybody. Sorry if it seemed like I was plagiarizing. But, um, but uh, this guy, David Fraze, who was from a church called Richland Hills Church of Christ, he just wrote, we can't out-teach what you teach at home. We're not that good. We're not that good. Like, your story is your story. It's not my story. I can't share your story for you, and you're with them 3,000 hours per year. So we can't out-teach what you teach at home. So when I heard this whole conversion story thing, like, it really affected me because I had a three-month-old at home who I'd never shared my story of faith conversion with. I'm not kidding, okay? So I remember thinking, this is like on a Wednesday that I heard this, and Friday was my day off, and I remember going, I'm going to share my story of faith conversion with Isaiah. So Friday came along, and I know it's absurd, okay, guys? Friday came along, and for two hours, I held our son, and I shared my story of faith conversion with him. And it's awesome. He never told me to shut up. It was great. And he only fell asleep a few times, so it was perfect. But I, and, and I really did do that. I'm not kidding. And I think the reason why I wanted to do that, I don't think the reason why, the reason why I wanted to do that was because I wanted to start building in a way for me to tell my story of faith. And I wanted it to be from the very beginning of his life that I was open about it. And uh, one of the things that gets really interesting in in these topics is, like, so when we share our story of faith conversion, what do we share? Like, when is it appropriate to start sharing things? So at Frontline, for example, we've got a lot of people where dads are, like, former crack addicts or, like, we've got former prostitutes at our church. So when is it appropriate to share about, like, my past and the things that I failed on? Like, when I, I smoked weed when I was a kid. And I realized, like, I, or, you know, this bad thing happened as a result or whatever. So when I was 16, I got in legal trouble, and I had to go to court. And I pled guilty to, like, a, like a misdemeanor. And so the question I need to wrestle through is, when is it going to be okay and appropriate to share the legal trouble that I got in when I was 16 with our son? That's what I need to wrestle through. And so a lot of people ask that, and really at the end of the day, it has to be what you decide to be. So a lot of people will go, when is it okay for me to talk about me uh, being sexually active with somebody, maybe with like my husband or wife before I was actually married? And so I get a lot of that, like, okay, um, you know, we were sexually active and then we, you know, had her after, you know, we had our daughter after we were married. When is it okay to start telling my daughter that? I don't know. Like, but I, but here's what I do know. A lot of us are afraid of telling our kids about how we failed and we only want to be perfect, but all that's going to raise is a kid who feels like they need to be perfect. And I, and hear me, I've got a three-year-old, so I speak, na- I speak na- naively, I'm naive about this, because I don't know what it's going to be like to tell my son about the legal trouble I got in and the stupid things I did. But what I do know is that I think the relationship with you and your kids when it's at the right time and it's in the right setting, when you share your failures, is going to go a lot, it'll be a lot better in the long run. And so my dad, when I was like 16 or 17, shared some things with me that were pretty significant. And, it, and I never once thought to myself, that my dad is a horrible person. What I actually thought was, wow, I, I can't believe my dad shared that. Like, I really feel, I feel safe around my dad. I feel comfortable around my dad. And so me struggling through the things I've struggled through in life I'm starting to wonder, when is it going to be appropriate to tell our son um, about those things? So let's talk about that. Um, let's talk about that for a second. 
what are your thoughts about sharing failures versus sharing successes? Is that easy to do? Is it hard to do? Have you found out a good time to do that? <laughs> right. good yeah Christian parents Yeah, one of the very first things I was going to ask is, have you ever asked your parents to share their story? I would do it. I would just sit them down and do it. Just ask them. And one of the things that will be challenging about it, and I don't know your parents, so don't please don't take any offense to this or whatever. I, what I say to people all the time is, like, share your conversion story, and if you don't have one, it's probably because you don't have much of a conversion. <laughs> right? So, like, like, make sure to share your story. Um, and I, I really, I don't know. I, there's something about a narrative that's so important. Um, and I would definitely ask them. 
I would have no problem doing it. I mean, doing it in a, doing it in a courteous, courteous way. Like, I mean, it wouldn't be helpful just to just be like, hey, you never shared your story. It really bothered me. Can you share your story now? <laughs> you know, like, so uh, please, you know, um, but doing it in a courteous way, be like, hey, I've just been really thinking, like, I've never really heard much of your story. Could I just hear it? And uh, maybe they never thought about it. There are pastors who come up to me after conferences that I'm speaking at, and they've been pastors for 30 years, and they'll just be like, dude, I've, I've never shared the story of my faith conversion with my kids. I'm going to go home and do that right now. I mean, that kind of thing. Is it, was it a common thing that parents didn't share their story of faith conversion with you? Like, raise your hand. Um, raise your hand. Keep your hand raised for those of you whose parents were in the church. And then, then drop your hands if they didn't if they didn't share their story of faith conversion. I'm curious about Christian families that didn't share their story of faith conversion. So one, so you guys right there, so there's three. Did I not ask that right? Was that unclear? Everybody was raising their hands and slowly. Okay. <laughs> if you were raised in the church and your parents are Christians, raise your hand. Don't lower your hand yet, okay? But lower your hand if your parents um, did share their story of faith conversion with you did. Okay, so the rows of you who have your hand raised, your parents did not share their story of faith conversion with you. I mean, that's a huge number, right? Like, that's, I mean, like 70%, maybe 75%. Yeah. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Your dad's a pastor too, right? Yeah, interesting. Yeah, I don't know. Intriguing. It is intriguing that so many people's parents didn't share their story of faith conversion. And some parents do. I mean, like, and one of the things that's interesting is I think some of us might go, well, my parents never sat me down and shared their story for two hours like I did with our son when he was three months old. It's not that. I mean, it's, but do you know the elements of the story? And, and one of the things I was talking to, who was I talking about with testimony yesterday? Were you there yesterday about testimonies? One of the things we harp on at Frontline is we harp on the idea when you share your story that at least 50% of your story, story should be post-conversion. Because in a lot of people's stories in church right now, we almost want the badness to come out. So 95% of our story is bad stuff. And then at the end, we're like, but then Jesus changed my life and he redeemed me. Thanks. And then I'm like, well, like, did you, do you care more about the sinful nature that you had or the new creation and what Jesus has brought you from? So, so some people might not, some people might not have had their parents share their conversion story where it's like an actual testimony written out or shared like, you know, in a one-time setting or whatever, but know your, know the, the basic narrative or whatever. But yeah. Um, anyway, yeah. Angie, did you have your hand raised? Right. Wow. 
That's cool. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. Mm How many parents in here right now would love to have that from their kids at some point along the line, right? Man, that would be awesome. Yeah, that's really cool you did that. Yeah. Yeah, and it's so hopeful when that happens, right? I mean, that's just awesome. I remember I – so I, I, I mentioned I was a terrible kid, and I got into legal trouble when I was younger and stuff. Um, so when I eventually – when I got here, um, I never really – I never really, like, shared openly and honestly about how thankful I was for my parents. And I remember I was traveling on summer team, and we were, like, seven or eight weeks into our summer, and it was just exhausting. And I don't know if you guys have – whoever traveled on a summer team here, but it was tiring. And I remember we were in Wisconsin at the Wisconsin district camp. And I, uh, it was like, I had a breaking point and I literally hand wrote my parents a letter because it was before the days of cell phones. Cause I'm old. And, uh, but I wrote my hand wrote my parents a letter. It was four pages long and, um, just told them how thankful I was and how grateful I was for them and mailed it out. And it was, uh, I, and basically just saying, hey, here's all the ways that I've changed. But it took me forever to get there. My parents were probably like, what in the world? <laughs> so what have, we, what have we done with them? And so um, anyway, uh, yeah, that kind of stuff's huge. Yeah, go for it.
Wow. Yeah. Wow, story shapes us, doesn't it? Like, it really does. I mean, this this whole thing is, yeah, it's good discussion, guys. Really good. Um, Let me uh, <clears throat> jump through this. I talked about, I, I shared this research. Uh, I shared this statistic. That one's fascinating. Let me just um, uh, read this really quick. Five best practices for sticky families. Conversations, conversations, conversations. Just being open about it, uh, about things things you're struggling with, things you failed on, that kind of stuff, and then conversion stories, which is very similar. Three is family rituals. Um, the, this is huge right there. Like, my, my family ritual was Friday nights were basically off limits to hanging out with friends because Friday nights was the time that my family and I ate out for dinner. And we went to different restaurants, and we didn't have – we didn't eat out a ton – and so we went out Friday nights, and uh, it was awesome. And one of the things that I think is that if we ask our kids to do something, kids are not going to want to do it, and so we don't want to ask them to do it. But if the family ritual is set up and it's actually maintained, again, the maintaining discipline attention thing is huge, it will pay off dividends. So Saturday morning was my wife's family time, and they would clean their house together. My mom's a hoarder, so she never really cleaned. Um, but <laughs> she needs an intervention big time. Um, and uh, I love my mom, but she definitely um, she needs to have an intervention. So, um, but, uh, so they would clean, and then right afterwards, they would play games, like board games, card games, whatever, and they would just hang out. And so Saturday morning was off limits for her um, to do anything else. And, uh, and family rituals are so, so significant. Um, really quick, let's just take a couple people and then we're going to take a break and then we're going to, there's a, a shorter session that we're going to talk about with sticky prep stuff and then we'll be done. Um, but what were a couple family rituals that you guys grew up doing? Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. That's a good ritual right there. <laughs> oh. Yeah. Wow. That's awesome. What else, what else family ritual that people had? Yeah. Really? Isn't that crazy? It's the it's the most random stuff. Ready, say it again. I didn't hear. It's, it's somebody back there. Didn't. <laughs> it's awesome. 
That's so good. If I could tweet that, that'd be great. Hashtag sticky faith, tuna melts, America's funniest some videos. Um, it's amazing, like, the random stuff that makes a significant impact. Was that, was that a really shaping time for you? Just, like, maybe not shaping, but was it a really, um, was that something that you learned priority from or those kinds of things? Like, how did it shape you? <laughs> you saying friends are friends forever and yeah animal defense was born that's right <laughs> yeah yeah that's really cool I, I we had um a lot of i had a lot of interaction time with with uh, people who were older than me because my parents would bring me out to eat and stuff. And so we would sometimes go out with friends and uh, or th- their friends or whatever, and we would just go out and hang out together and stuff. So I remember Paul and Candy Cleary were a really big part of our lives and stuff. Um, yeah, so it's cool just hanging out with friends and stuff. Um, yeah, so, uh, so family rituals, eating together at the dinner table is huge, huge. There's so much to be said about sharing a meal together. And so um, that's a really big one. And my family, my family grew up, we were TV tray family and so um we didn't really eat dinner together my wife's family did eat dinner together um every single night when i'm home anyway um when we're all together we eat at the table and it's a big thing uh, we don't eat in the living room and tv's not on unless it's jeopardy because i really like jeopardy i'm just kidding well actually i do like jeopardy it's but um then serving together and then the church and family working together 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 so um anyway uh let's move to, um, I was going to, we've had a, a lot of conversation kind of about authoring stories, stuff like that. So um, let's take a break. Let's stand up and go meet somebody from a different generation than you haven't met yet. And then we'll come back together in, um, let's take a 10 minute break. Are you guys good with that? Yeah? Yes? 10 minutes. Okay. This, um, this session coming up won't be super long, okay? Uh, my guess is this session will be about 30 minutes or so. It won't be long. That includes the discussion. Hopefully we'll be done a little after 3. And then I think it's supposed to go until 4 or maybe 4.30 or something like that. Um, I think 4. So we'll uh, hammer through this and then um, can stay and have conversations and stuff like that. So good? If you want. I mean, I'll stick around. So, Uh, okay. You guys feel okay? Are you tired? Brain's okay? My brain gets tired after talking about this a lot. So, um, yeah, and they just canceled the Halifax one yesterday for tomorrow, which is a bummer because the weather is going to be like, yeah, it's going to be really bad. So we're supposed to get like 12 to 18 inches of snow or something like that between two days. And I got to be back here. I was supposed to go tonight. I was going to drive to Halifax, speak in Halifax for eight hours tomorrow, come back here because I'm preaching in chapel on Friday and then fly, drive to Moncton because I'm flying out for the day. So um, I'm going back, going back to the G-Rap, to the 616. Mm, so, yeah. So, but they canceled for uh, tomorrow. So, but it was good because I get to do lunch with AJ Pleasure tomorrow. So, and I get to do intro to youth ministry class with Brent Dongel. So my day is already kind of full. So it's, um, yeah, it's filling up. But, um, okay, cool. So, uh Again, remember the number. One in two or two in five kids will ditch their faith within about 18 months of leaving for college. 
the most significant time is the first two weeks, four days to the first two weeks. And the, the whole thing that changed everything for me was the question, what about the kids who didn't want to be in youth group after they left? Did they make a conscious decision to do it? And the number of 80% of the 40 to 50% intended to stick with faith. That's what changed everything for me. Because before that, I used to think, well, you can get a kid in college and still change their mind. And the problem is, is you're too late when you do that, right? It's too late. So it's all about the prep. It's all, how we, all about how we prepare our kids. So we shared this number before. 15% of kids that they researched felt, uh, felt prepared for faith um, or equipped with faith beyond high school. And so I mentioned before that the number one, I promised that I'd get here like seven hours later and I'm getting here. It's awesome, right? The number one advice to youth leaders is prepare us better. Prepare us better. And if you really think about it, it really is all about that preparation, right? Like it, it's one thing to have support when you're going through a crisis, but it's another thing to have support to maybe not have to go through the crisis, like, do you get what I'm saying? So it's all about the preparation. So this is, um, this is uh, Alex and Jenny, these two kids that they studied. One was this, um, uh, or with both of them are kind of along the same lines. Um, Alex said, I think this is so telling of youth groups right here. There was no transition at all. It was, hey, you're in high school. Hey, look, you're a senior. Then bam, it was, see you around, kid. And then Jenny wrote, honestly, the transition has not been easy. My church offers nothing for college students. I find I do not fit in anymore. I do not belong to the youth group anymore. And it has been hard for me because I was in that youth group for four years of my life. And so what we have is we have a lot of churches where um, you literally graduate and then you may not talk to your youth pastor for a year. You may not talk to anybody in your church for a year because you left and went west and you went to college somewhere. And so how we prepare our kids to transition their faith is so, so significant. So I want to talk about some best practices for sticky prep. One is start early. If you are talking about kids transitioning on graduation day at your church, you've started too late. Start early in the year. The, the sticky faith teen curriculum with the DVDs, the DVD curriculum is gold. It's meant to help bring up topics that they found kids struggle with in, high, in college that cause faith to be lost. And so it's meant to do this. And so some of the topics are recovery. And when we mean recovery, we mean recovery from sin. Like, talk to them about what's going to happen when they sin, not if they sin. Remember, it's not a matter of if they have a moral failure. It's when they have a moral failure or do something stupid. So ask, um, ask them, how will you recover? This all goes back to the sticky gospel um, and the idea that we, the gospel of sin management idea, and if they have a correct understanding, a non-truncated understanding of the gospel, then the recovery after sin is easier because they feel as though God will forgive them for their sins. They believe that their sins are not too bad to be forgiven. Okay, so recovery, finding a church or a campus ministry. Now, I don't know what a lot of the colleges are like in Canada, so I'll speak as if I'm in the United States, and hopefully it will apply, okay? But one of the things that I did, um, one of the things that I would do for college, or for graduating seniors, when I was a youth, when I was a youth pastor, was I would call, I would go around and look, so if a kid's going to go to Michigan State University, which is an hour away from my hometown, I mean, from, from where I live right now, uh, if I knew that, 
then I would look and find the campus ministries that are on campus, and I would send that information to the kid, and I would call the leader of that campus ministry. And I remember specifically this one girl named Haley was graduating from our youth group, phenomenal leader. I mean, just rock-solid leader in our youth group. And I called and said, hey, in a few weeks, this girl Haley is going to be on campus. You should give her a call, and you should try to get her plugged in and connected. And so she gets a call from this guy from the campus ministry and saying, hey, when you get on campus, I can't wait to connect. Well, what's that make her feel? It makes her feel valued. It's getting her to think that before she gets to campus, she's going to start thinking about the campus ministry, going to church, getting plugged in. Another thing that's really intriguing um, uh, is, is this idea of finding a church. If a kid has been raised in a church their entire life, what do you think it's going to feel like when they graduate and they're shipped off to college and they walk into a church for the very first time and they have never had to walk into a new church? What do you think that'll feel like to them? Terrifying? Awkward? Alienating? Intimidating? Different? Yeah. And so one of the things that we did at Frontline, and we stole the idea because all the best ideas are stolen according to John Maxwell, um, is we, we decided, um, and I, I asked for this, and thankfully my lead pastor did this, and so if you're a lead pastor in here, do this for your youth pastor, right? please, is I said, hey, could I have like four weeks off in April um, from Sundays so that I can bring our graduating seniors and some of our juniors maybe around to different churches in Grand Rapids so they can experience what it's like to walk into a different church? So I remember taking about 20 senior high or 20 um, seniors in high school one time, and we had different leaders, and we split up into groups, like a four or five, and we um, all went to different churches, like completely different churches. And so Frontline, our our church building is a hundred thousand square foot warehouse. We have like it is the coolest, most modern church you could imagine. Like there's no pipe organ, there's no pews in our church. There's nothing like that. We have plywood all over the place and particle board. And we, so I said, okay, when we bring our kids to church, we're going to bring them to the exact opposite of what they know. We're, I'm going to bring them to the most traditional church they could possibly imagine. Because when they go to Central Michigan University in Alma, Michigan, and it's just tiny, tiny little town, they might only have a, a, a traditional church to go to. That might be the only thing they have. And so I went with kids and some kids liked it, some kids didn't. It was different for them. But what happened was they went in a group and they felt comfortable going as a group. And then when we were after the services, we all got back together and we debriefed what our experiences were like. What was it like when you had to kneel at that point during the service? Like, what was it like when that pastor, like, preached like that? What was it like when you had to go around and shake people's hands? What was it like when you heard an organ and there were no drums on stage? And the you sang all hymns and you had to read from a book like because we don't have books we don't have hymnals at our church so what was it like like when they were saying open up to page 94 like did you even know what a hymnal was like asking them those kinds of questions and getting them in completely different settings than they're used to and uh and so we took four weeks all went to these different churches and debriefed after every single time um, that was super helpful for our graduating seniors. Time and money. Think about when you first went to college, or if you're here in college, think about what it was like the first time you really went to college and you realized, oh my gosh, I'm on my own and I only have class 12 hours a week or 15 hours a week. Like, you could just sleep 
Remember, remember the thought of like, oh my gosh, I can just sleep in until noon today. That's amazing. Like, and so what would happen if we started talking to, to students about how we manage their time and how they manage their money? We, we start talking to kids about um, generosity and tithing. So when they get money, they can build into this idea that God has called them to be generous and to give and to return back what God has given them. Um, and so uh, another thing is time. Another thing with time is like when the weekend hits and kids are tired from school. Um, are you going to sleep in on a Sunday or are you going to go to church? What time are you going to set your alarm for? What time does that church down the road start? And talk to them about it. Literally say, um, hey, go and look up on a, online or on white pages or where, .com or whatever. Find out when that church starts and, um, and then ask them, okay, you have to get, and kids, you have to be as pl- painfully, painstakingly practical as possible. Okay, so if the church starts at 10 and you're, a, and you're 20 minutes away, then the latest you need to leave is 940 and it's going to take you a half hour to get ready. So you need to get up by 910. And literally spell it out for them and talk them through that or have volunteers talk them through that. Because if, if, the de- if decisions that are critical to their faith retention happen within the first four days to, tw- to two weeks, then ask them what that's going to be like the very first Sunday they're on campus and they're at a party on Saturday night really, really late. Right? Are they going to want to get up on a Sunday? Are they going to go to that party? What are they going to do with their time? Do you get what I'm saying? Does that make sense? So ask them, try to get them to process that. And then the first two weeks, obviously, um, you know, that kind of thing. Um, give them leads is just huge. Um, so give them leads, give them leads, give them leads. This is one thing that's really interesting is that um, a lot of sticky faith churches, a lot of, a lot of churches that are processing this stuff, we're processing something called the four plus one or the four plus four model. Um, and this is really intriguing to me. Um, and uh, kind of did this, kind of, we've kind of done this in Frontline, but a lot of churches have adopted this, is um, what would happen if the youth pastor at your church, or at least the high school youth pastor, was responsible for four years of high school plus their first year of college. So the spiritual development of a kid is um, you help them and you're responsible for their one year of college. Well, but what if they go to British Columbia or what if they head to California? Send them Facebook messages. Email them, Skype with them, talk with them about how they're plugging in, give them leads, call the campus ministries, do those kinds of things. But maybe on a job description, maybe job descriptions need to change so that they're now responsible for four, for four years of high school and then that first year of transition. Um, and then some churches who are a little more daring are doing the four plus four model, which is four years of high school and then the four years of college, or in my case, five years of college. <laughs> the four plus five model, um, <laughs> but uh, nine years on that depressed. So um, uh, anyway, that's that's really significant, right? Um, and uh, and here's another thing, and I I I I don't know how many people are on church staffs here, uh, and so I know there's some students, so I don't want to bore people, but uh, we created. Um, man, maybe I should talk. I don't know if I should talk about this. Can I talk to you about some core values that we've created at our church to work interdepartment so that we're not so siloed? Is that okay? So I don't have these up on a screen, but um, these won't be up on the, as an actual slide, but let me just at least read you some of these core values that we created um, because they were really, really significant to us. So we, uh, we created eight core values as a department. This, um, this uh, maybe, you know what? I can do this. <laughs> Look at that. Neato. Okay. Um, 
So we created eight core values as, a, as an intergenerational department. So I oversee six staff members. Actually, I oversee about 10 staff members, but um, six of us were at this retreat, and um, it was in June last year. And we, um, this is actually not a rough draft. I just never changed the heading on it. So, um, so we talked about um, things that we want to do that are different. So we are separated, siloed, segregated ministries, but we believe, as uh, my, my official title is the intergenerational pastor, so how can I oversee spiritual formation while having separate silos and overseeing separate ministry staff that are age-appropriate um, and department-appropriate while decentralizing silos to work together? So these core values were really, really significant for us, and so I'll just go through these really quickly. Uh, we talked about transitioning, which is the four plus, this is the reason why I was thinking about it, was because of the four plus one and four plus four thing, and how kids transition out. So transitioning, we will work with other ministry staff to effectively transition children or students into new ministry departments as needed. Now let's catch this, even after that child or student has graduated from their ministry, which means that if you're a children's ministry pastor, and you're responsible through fifth grade, then maybe your job description is that for that next year, the middle school pastor and you work with that kid to transition. And you might, as a children's ministry pastor, have to help that kid transition for a year. So one of the things we also do is we do this thing called the fast pass at our youth group. Um, and the fast pass is if you've ever been to Disney World, um, and uh, you go and you can get a fast pass and you can cut in line. You know what I'm talking about? And you can you don't have to wait for like an hour and a half to go on the Peter Pan ride when it's 100 million degrees in Florida. So, um, uh, so what, you can, what we did was we created this fast pass idea and we said, what would happen if we transitioned kids at the end of the school year um, before the summer hits and they start at the beginning of the next school year? Because what was happening was we were losing kids in the transition from the end of the program year from the fifth grade and they would be gone from programming because they were too old to go to programming now because now they're sixth graders and that we would wait until the fall to actually get them into our program. So what we said was, let's transition them early. And so for four weeks every year, at the end of the program year, we send this VIP fast pass thing where it's on a lanyard and you can come as a fifth grader and you come, you come up with your parents and if you bring a lanyard, you get like a gift or something like that. Um, and so you have this fast pass and you can come for the last four weeks of a program year. So you actually transition, it feels like you're transitioning a year early instead of waiting until the next year. Does that make sense? What was brilliant about it um, is uh, what ended up happening as a result was we were able to connect kids with small group leaders before the summer hit, and they had relationships as opposed to not having a small group leader, and then the fall hit before we get plugged in, and I mean, really, they weren't coming. It was really difficult. We had taken months off, and for us, middle school the middle school transition is really difficult because it's the first program. It's, the, it's one of the only programs that we do at our church that doesn't run on a Sunday morning, right? So because we run the simple church model, Tom Rainer, where we, de we deprogramize so much. We're running as simply as possible and only having people come, only having parents and kids come at the same sort of time all the time. So like we're not having parents come 18 nights a week, you know, like because um, that we often over church people. Let's just be honest. Some Maybe some of the, one of the most important things you can do is you're, people at your church could take a Sabbath from your church, okay? So, because you've overwhelmed them and you've exhausted them. And so, um, sorry, some of you hate me now. But, um, and so anyway, the, the point is, is that we were able to help transition them early and it, uh, super effective, super effective, okay? Um, second, hills and valleys. We will be aware of the hills and valleys within each ministry department. And by that, I mean to say, sometimes for student ministry, the hill 
is there's more attendance coming because it's the beginning of a program year or because you're gearing up for this event. And sometimes you're in a valley because you don't have an event coming up, and so you know that you're going to be a little less busy. So we talked about hills and valleys. We'll be aware of the hills and valleys within each ministry department, recognizing and showing support when a department or staff member may need help during a busy calendar season or upcoming event. So prime example of this, we just opened up this new 12,000-square-foot children's ministry edition at Frontline, and what ends up happening is we are swamped busy in children's ministry desperately needs our help because the block, our new children's area, needs to be done, right? It has to get finished, and we are concerned it's not going to get finished by January 19th when it opens up. And so for three weeks, in the middle of a busy season for me, I said, I will put aside whatever I need to do so that children's ministry can thrive. And for three weeks, our, our youth pastor, in the middle of a busy season for him, said, I'm going to put aside some of the things that I need to do so we help children's ministry thrive. We're a large church, okay? It's not like we don't have things to do. But the point is, is that we're prioritizing. So we want to recognize hills and valleys so we help each other. Decentralizing competition, okay? Um, and within siloed ministries. Call fouls. We will give each other the freedom to call fouls. If unhealthy silos are created between different departments in healthy and constructive ways, and that's important, in healthy and constructive ways, because we can call fouls, and it's not healthy constructive sometimes, right? So in healthy and constructive ways, um, understanding that we will make mistakes and always be willing to show grace and move forward. That ending is big, okay? Just letting you know that, because we can call the foul if grace isn't extended, right? Four, freedom to risk. We will encourage and embrace risk by suggesting and implementing well-planned ideas, um, well-planned ideas that build stronger intergenerational and sticky faith values. Effective advocacy. We talked about how we advocate for um, for uh, departments, and one of the things that one of the things we were realizing was that we were having a little bit of an argument because we felt like student ministry was getting too much on-stage platform time, as and instead of children's ministry. And so we started asking the question: How do we effectively, equally advocate for all all departments? So, in an effort to effectively advocate for all departments, we will be careful not to emphasize or promote one ministry more than another. If applicable, when promoting departments or events, we will work together to promote that department or event or specific event, which was big. Resourcing parents, because we all work with parents. And have you guys ever realized that? We all work with parents on some fundamental level. Every single department that I oversee anyway, we work with parents. So um, where I used to think that the only people who worked with, the parent, with parents were children's ministry and student ministry, but now I'm realizing that working with adult discipleship, work with parents all the time, okay? So um, because we all work with parents and believing that equipping parents to raise their children in a godly, biblical way is of utmost importance, we will focus our energies towards providing the most effective resources, events, and support to make this a reality. Number seven is tell stories. We will focus on telling stories of changed lives, never allowing a program to be more important than the individual lives of the children, students, and adults we partner with. You catch that. We want stories of actual people to be more important than programs. As a result, while we, while we will still measure numbers from programs and volunteering, because that's important, and even the retention of volunteers that we have, because we have a lot of volunteers that aren't being retained because we don't train them well, so we even calculate at Frontline down to the percentage of retained volunteers that we have the next year. You guys catch what I'm saying? So if you, you actually decide what you want your percentage of retention to be for volunteers, so let's say that you want 85% retention, and let's say that you hit 65% retention, well, the problem is that you might not be training and equipping and resourcing your volunteers too well, or you might be having them be too busy or something like that, and you might need more volunteers. So even the percentage of volunteer retention that we have is huge, and we still measure it because numbers are important, okay? So... Um, as a result, while we will still measure numbers from programs of volunteering, we recognize our best measure success of success is through stories of, of life change. 
Amen? Okay. And then eight, this one's really interesting. It's hard to do, but we will balance together versus separate. We will balance working together to minimize silos and working separately within our own ministry departments. We will do this by helping other departments when needed, by supporting things not in our job descriptions, but respecting that we are still individual departments. A question to ask is what is best for the entire team? So that's just something that's been super helpful for us um, as we've uh, as we've kind of just processed through working together and um, in different um, yeah different ministries, different departments, that kind of thing. So um, let me go really quickly through the rest of this. Um, you guys good on that? Does that make sense? Uh, if you want this, I'll my, I think my email address is at the end, so you can catch my email address. I can send you that stuff. I'm not allowed to send these slides, but I can send. We can figure out a way to get the content to you, but I can't send the slides. So does that make sense? So um, anyway, uh, number five, stay in touch. Stay in touch. Um, one of the very first things I would do when a kid left for a college campus is I would text them and say, I missed them. I would just miss, I miss you. Kids need to feel valued. Kids need to feel like they're missed. If they feel missed and you remind them that the church misses them, the likelihood that there, there's a possibility that they could start thinking about church while they're there. Wow, my church misses me. Man, I need a church family here. Like those kinds of things. And because you've already talked to them for a while about it, it shouldn't be new, right? But just get in touch through like, you know, Facebook or the mail um, or something like that. And one of the ways that we have found, one of the easiest things that we found um, for churches to do is to send care packages. And so um, this one has been so big for churches. And so it's kind of like the five plus or the five to one ratio thing where a lot of people are walking away going, that's the thing I'm going to remember. This is the thing that a lot of people remember from this session is um, this idea that we want to send care packages to kids. What person, what kid does not like to receive mail, especially at college, right? All of us like to receive mail no matter what, unless it's a bill, we like mail, okay? And we get lots of bills in my family, okay? But um, what kid doesn't like to receive a care package? And so We've literally had um, senior citizens make cookies for, for kids and then mail them to the college. And they're crumbly, maybe a little moldy by the time they get there. But, we, but what we, they care about is the fact that it was actually sent. So one of the things that we do to involve current students um, in this care package idea is the second week of programming every year is – uh, is given, because remember, it's the first two weeks that it matters, right? The second week of programming every year, all of our kids in our student ministry program get together and we make, um, we have these huge cards that we make for each of the students that graduated the previous year. And we write, hey, we miss you. And every single kid signs every single card. And then we put these, all of these cards and a whole bunch of gifts together in this box. And then we mail it out to them from the church and from the youth group at the church. And what's brilliant about it, and we, I think we stole the idea. I, I think we stole the idea. We might've thought about it on our own, but it's probably, it's too good an idea for us to think about because we're stupid. At least I am. So we probably stole it, but yeah. Um, we've sent, we've sent candy. Uh, we've sent books before. So we sent a book called um, Make College Count by a guy named Derek Mellaby. And it's kind of a smaller book, but I mean, in the likelihood of kids reading books, eh, uh, is not there. Uh, we've sent um, $10 Bigby gift cards before, um, which is a coffee shop in Grand Rapids or, um, or Starbucks. Um, like we have, we just got Tim Hortons in Grand Rapids, which is like my, there's a Tim Hortons an eighth of a mile from our new house that we just bought. It's awesome. So uh, it was like, God just, he blessed us. It was good. We, his, he poured out his favor on us. So, um, so, uh, 
So we've done that before. Another thing that we did, sorry, I'm just trying to think about prepping and all this stuff. One of the things we did for graduation presents for this year, or, th or the last two years for kids, is we used to give a book away, or we used to give something, and we realized kids just really aren't, the likelihood of them reading books, I, don't, I just don't know if it's going to happen or not. And so we bought, uh, we bought $10 gift cards to Starbucks, and every single kid who graduated got a $10 gift card, and the gift card, the, we told them, as much as you could force somebody to do it, we said, this gift card is intended for you to go either talk to your small group leader, um, but hopefully your parent about the transition from college, or transition into college. And so that was their gift. It was a $10 gift card to Starbucks. And we said, go have, one go have at least one conversation with your mom and dad about faith, your faith transition. Have some sort of conversation. And it's free. Like, here you go. So we've given gift cards away. We've given uh, pictures away. We found pictures. Um, one, one thing we did was, uh, one thing that a church did that was in our, um, in our Sticky Faith cohort in 2011, they did these things called vision plans, where they would actually interview and sit down with a student about what they wanted to do, what their favorite verse was. If they didn't have a favorite verse, they would kind of scour the Bible and talk through the Bible or whatever. They would get all these pictures from parents together. They would talk about their major and what they wanted them to do and all this stuff. And then um, in the box that they would send, they would actually have carefully crafted this thing called a vision plan for these kids' lives, which had like all of the things that they loved to do, but all of the ways they wanted to move forward on, these on this sheet of paper front and back. And it was literally called a vision plan, and they would get it in the mail the first two weeks of them leaving for college. That is a genius idea. Uh, it is a tremendous amount of work, a ridiculous amount of work. They said that each interview lasted three hours, and then all of the work to put the thing together afterwards was crazy. And so we'd get pictures from families, those uh, from family members, and put them in the box, a variety of different things. So, yeah, and each one's kind of different, too. It's just, yeah, who knows? But does that help answer? Did you have your hand raised? Oh, yeah. Sure. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah, Tim Hortons. And let's face it, Tim Hortons is better anyway, so, right? Um, so involving your current students, right? Um, and then seven is um, um, how will you respond to them when they fail? Not if they fail. I've probably said that five times today, right? Not if they fail, when they fail. Do they feel as though God will forgive them? So this is the recovery topic thing that I had talked about. But the teen curriculum that they have for Sticky Faith is, is just fantastic for this kind of stuff. It talks a lot about this sort of stuff. So um, anyway, I, uh, I have one story I want to share. And then if we want to, does anybody have any questions? Because we'll end after I share the story. And I want to do one thing that I want you guys to do one thing as you leave. And it won't take long. But does anybody have any questions or any thoughts or anything like that? Good? Can I share a story? All right. So um, a few years ago, I was in Atlanta, and I was, um, I was at a conference, and uh, I was with a couple really good friends. And um, so I grew up in northern Maine, right? Like, it was freezing cold, and it was, like, kind of wintertime down there, and I was really excited to get down. And um, I remember uh, we, got to, we were staying with one of the guys. We were staying at his brother's house, and his brother and his wife, um, uh, or his, his, this guy's brother's wife um, came and picked us up at the airport, and she picked us up in a really nice vehicle. And so, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of poor, and so I was like, wow, this is a nice car, you know? And um, so we get, uh, we're driving, and we get to um, their house, and we pull up into this long driveway. And I didn't know who these people were. Pull up into the long driveway, and we tuck in behind their driveway, and this house is so nice. I mean, ridiculously nice. And as we pull into the driveway, there is a brand-new Porsche 
911 Carrera Turbo S parked in the parking lot or parked in the driveway of this guy's house. So this is actually the car, okay? Um, and it's really awkward to see me standing like that. So we'll just take that away. Um, and uh, so um, there, we'll do that. Um, so uh, we're, I'm like, I see this Porsche and I, I'm like, I've never seen a Porsche like this close up front or this up close or whatever. I mean, this is amazing. Like we have, we have tractors in Maine, okay? We don't have Porsches in Maine. And so I'm like amazed by this. And, uh, and so we're there for a few days for this conference and day after day goes by or whatever. And um, I'm just like seeing this Porsche park there or whatever. So one of these days we're going to this restaurant and the amount of people going in to the restaurant was more than the amount of the people that could fit in one vehicle. So a second vehicle had to be taken. So this guy who owned the car, said, um, his name is David. Um, David uh, looks at me and he was like, Matt, do you want to ride in, in the Porsche? And I was like, no, yes. Like, heck yes, I want to ride in the Porsche. And so, um, I, uh, so I was like, uh, so I, 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 we go outside and I'm so excited, right? Like, I am just so pumped. And so I get, I go and I, I shut the door and I squeeze in. And it was at that moment that I realized that pear-shaped bodies are not meant for Porsches at all. Like, they, I, it, I couldn't breathe kind of thing. And so I'm in this tiny little car and I was like, sque squeeze my way in. It's so exciting that I'm in there. So he like, he, uh, he gets in the car and he backs this car down the driveway. And uh, he stops on the road and he goes, are you ready? And I was like, dude, I'm so ready for this. And he hit the gas. And like literally in a split, like seconds, we were going 87 miles an hour on a back road in Atlanta, okay? Which was terrifying, okay? But it was still exciting nonetheless. I remember at one point we were going so fast that I like tried to touch the dash with my finger. And I was literally like, which for me was like right here. And I was like, like the G-forces were like, ah, trying to like, it was amazing. I mean, it's this crazy experience. I've never done this before in my life. And so um, about 10 minutes later, uh, David pulls into, or he pulls up to a red light and he stops and he looks at me and he goes, dude, Matt, you want to drive it? And I was like, no, yes. Like, heck yes. And so then I was like starting to think like at the time I had a 2000 Hyundai accent that like barely had brakes and it shook violently at 70 on the highway. Like, uh, and I was like, if I crash this Porsche, my insurance is really in trouble. This is not going to be good. And so, um, I, but I decided I was like, I'm going to do it. And it's a stick. And I was like, I'm going to stall this Porsche or something. So um, finally I decided to do it. And I was like, okay, yeah. So I pull in, I, I get into the car, squeeze my way in again. And, um, and David, I remember he, he looked at me. I'll never forget the way he said it. He looked at me and he said, Matt, you have free reign to drive this car as fast as you want okay. I think I immediately grew chest hair, right? Like, this is awesome. I am so much more of a man after this moment. And so um, I, I am in this car, and uh, you have free reign to drive this car as fast as you want. And so I pull out on the road, and I get this thing going, and we are hauling. We're going like 45 miles an hour, baby. We are cruising in this Porsche. And uh, so we're driving around. I'm cutting the kind of the feel for the car. And, and I looked at David, and I said, do you mind if I give the car a little bit of gas? And, uh, and he was like, absolutely. Again, he repeats to me, you free reign to drive this car as fast as you want. And I was like, awesome. So I hit the gas and we get up to like 55 miles an hour. We're hauling. I'm so excited, right? I ease off the gas. And uh, a couple minutes later, I'm like, so do you mind if I give it a gas again? Again, free reign to drive this car as fast as you want. So I got up to like 65 and I'm driving. And we finally get to this restaurant where we're going. And I pulled in and my chest was sticking out and it was awesome. It was like this great moment. We got into the restaurant and my friend Ian knew 
that I was gonna, he was gonna ask me to drive the Porsche. And obviously he knew I'm gonna drive the Porsche. And so, um, uh, so he says to me, dude, how did you do? And I was like, oh man, it was awesome. It was so incredible. It was the greatest experience. And you know, like blah, blah, blah. And I was just going on and on. And I remember he looked at David and he asked him the same question. He was like, how did he do? And David, as casually as could be, said this. He went, ah, I mean, you know, right? He took it easy. Like something in my spirit, like in my soul, like cringed. Like he did all right. He took it easy. I just drove a Porsche. He took it easy. I mean, and like it bothered me the whole meal. It bothered me the whole night. It bothered me the next morning. Like and something in my spirit. It literally didn't settle right in me. Like he did all right, he took it easy. And then it occurred to me that the reason why I wasn't okay with it was because I didn't drive the Porsche like it was meant to be driven. I drove the Porsche like a Hyundai Accent. I didn't drive the Porsche like a Porsche. And so I did take it easy. And uh, I have a concern. Like it's one, it's it's fun when we talk about Porsches, okay? I mean, we talk about fast cars and like being an idiot and not driving a car fast and taking it easy. But I have this concern, and I have no idea what heaven is going to be like. I don't think any of us have an idea of what heaven is going to be like. But I have this concern that we're going to get to heaven, and Jesus is going to look at me, and he's going to go, hey, Matt, this whole sticky faith, faith retention, like, thing, you, you had answers to it, right? Like, how did you do? And I'm going to be like, oh, I did amazing. I did amazing. And Jesus is going to look at me, and he's going to go, I don't know. I mean, you did all right. You took it easy. I have this concern that I, I feel so responsible knowing this information to do something about it. Because this awareness for me of this information has, it has to lead to action. I can't know this and then just keep it in. Which is why I'm literally, I've traveled across the country into a different country, and I'm away from my family for a week to talk about this because I'm obsessed with it. Because I'm so afraid that at the end of the day, I'm going to get to, and, and, and Jesus is going to literally look at me and go, hey, dude, you had, you had free reign to drive the church as fast as you wanted it to go, and you just took it easy. You just took it easy. And like, if I can implore us here, if I can implore us, we have been given the keys to a church, and we are entrusted with this thing called the church, and it is unbelievably powerful. And it, is, it goes unbelievably fast. And it is the most important thing on the planet. And I am concerned that a lot of us are going to take it easy. And we're going to get to heaven and Jesus is going to go, man, you, you could have done way better. Like at the end of the day, you just didn't really try hard. And I don't know what heaven is going to be like, but I have this fear. I have this fear that I'm not going to have done enough with the information that has been given to me. Um, ignorance is not bliss in this case. Awareness is dangerous because it causes us to act. And so my hope for all of this stuff, all of this information, the literally last few hours is that we process and think through what does this mean for me and my church so that our church can travel as fast as it can possibly go. Are you with me on this? And so I, I, this literally, this stuff is what keeps me up at night and what wakes me up in the morning. I love talking about this stuff. Please email me if you have any questions. 
connect with me. Tell me how this is working in your churches. Go to stickyfaith.org and see a lot of what they're doing and the stories that are being shared because this stuff is profoundly important. Am I the only one who thinks that in here? Am I the only one who thinks that in here? <laughs> stuff is profoundly important. And so um, here's what I would love to do to end. I would love if um, those of us, because there's multiple generations in here, I would love if those of us uh, who are in here could gather with somebody who's from a different generation than us and just pray for each other for, for sticky faith in the areas that we oversee are going to be a part of in the future. Um, and so just pray. Um, it doesn't have to be super long or anything like that, but just pray for each other as you guys process and think through um, sticky faith, intergenerational ministry, those kinds of things. So thanks, guys, for coming. Let's break up into groups, and then once you guys are done, you're dismissed. And I hope you have an awesome day and safe travels because the weather sounds like it's going to be brutal. So cool? All right, so let's get up, find somebody from a different generation and pray with them, and then we'll go.